Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today we'll be sharing two separate interviews I recorded from the past week. Up first is New Orleans-based author Clayton Dellery talking about his new book, Out for Queer Blood, The Murder of Fernando Rios and the Failure of New Orleans Justice. Take a listen. How are you doing today, Clayton? I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I, I'm looking forward to talking to you about mm -hmm. this. Um, to kind of start us off, uh, who was Fernando Rios and uh, what happened to him? Um, very little is known about Fernando Rios. In fact, I've, I've written a book about his death and I still don't know much about yeah. him. Uh, he was a Mexican tour guide um, in town for work. Uh, he had brought a group of doctors on, and their wives on a vacation to New Orleans. Um, he had no friends or relatives here, none that I could ever uncover anyway. So he was a stranger. Almost certainly gay, but even there, there's a slight question mark. Um, and uh, the uh, really the evidence there was that on the night he was killed, he was in a gay bar. Mm -hmm. He was finished with his work for the day. He had left... Um, the doctors and their wives at the hotel or given them instructions, you know, to where they might want to go to entertain themselves. And he went out by himself to Cafe Lafitte in Exile, uh, which then as now is a gay bar on Bourbon Street. And while he was there, he struck up a conversation with um, a very handsome young man by the name of John Farrell. And after they talked together in the bar somewhere, probably between a half hour and 45 minutes, they left together with the understanding that Farrell was going to drive Rios back to his uh, hotel and with the presumed assumption that they would have sexual uh, activity when they got there. What Rios didn't know was that John Farrell was straight, not gay. He was in the bar pretending to be straight and he had two friends waiting outside and those two friends followed Farrell and Rios um, into Père Antoine Alley, which was much darker at night then than it is now. Um, and uh, Fernando, and, and they, they had gone out that night on a mission to roll a queer. Um, and the verb to roll was used in much the same way that we use the verb to mug now. I mean, you know, to, to beat up, rob, possibly, but just generally rough somebody up. Yeah. Um, so, so that was their night's entertainment. They were three college students. They didn't have dates. They couldn't think of anything else to do. They decided to beat up a queer. And the, um, the beating they gave Fernando Rios was so severe that he died of his injuries the next day. Now, today that would be categorized as a hate crime, but the terminology didn't exist then. Mm -hmm. And this coincided with an official municipal effort on the part of Mayor Chet Morrison and the city council. They were um, trying to eliminate homosexuality from the city of New Orleans. It didn't work, mm. um, obviously. But um, but this, this official effort was known as the drive against the deviates. And at the time that the Rios murder occurred and in the months leading up to the trial, the city was trying to pass or Mayor Morrison was trying to get the city council to pass a package of six ordinances that would drive homosexual men out of the city. So um, the news coverage is pretty fascinating in those months because on one page of the newspaper, 
you read that uh, the mayor and the city council think that gay men are a threat to the moral and economic health of the city, and they're doing all they can to get rid of them. And then a couple of pages later, you read a story about three Tulane students um, who are facing trial for killing a Mexican tour guide after he made an indecent advance. Mm -hmm. um, and so the two events were playing off of each other in, in a way that um, City Hall was making use of in, in pretty clear ways. Yeah, I could see that. And it's a, it's a tragedy mm -hmm. and uh, horrific. Um, I'm thinking more about in the popular culture now, you hear of New Orleans always being a haven for for certain cultures that weren't accepted elsewhere. But here you have this uh, planned and committee via the city government to try and push elements out, yeah. uh, which is so interesting. Uh, yeah. I, that's, that, is, that is something that I have to confess was a bit of a surprise to me, too. Yeah. We, uh, New Orleans, throughout the 20th century, New Orleans had a reputation for being a gay populous city. Yeah. And so the assumption was that it was also a gay-friendly city, but uh, in the 1950s, it was not. There was really a concerted effort to push the LGBT population out. Um, and so, yes, it, that, that d does come as a bit of a surprise. Yeah. What got you interested in this story in the first place? Well, I was, um, I first encountered it when I was doing the research for my book on the upstairs lounge fire. Mm -hmm. And, uh, basically I just read a couple of articles, um, that talked about significant events in the city's gay history. Um, and of course, what I was doing at that time was looking for what they said about the upstairs lounge fire, but a couple of them said, basically said, oh yes, and in the 1950s, a man named Fernando Rios was murdered. Um, and um, it struck me that his was a story that really hadn't been told. Yeah. And, um, and so after I finished the book on the upstairs lounge, uh, I did some research to see what there was. Um, and, and then I decided that there was enough there for a book and and that that story really did need to be t told. Yeah. No, I, the, um, the three killers, by the way, were acquitted. And when they, uh, when the verdict was read in the courtroom, everyone, everyone in the courtroom broke out into loud, sustained cheers. So they were applauded for killing, um, a Mexican gay man. And that's one of the things you also mentioned in kind of the, uh, bio behind the book is mm -hmm. that another aspect of this is not just about uh, sexuality, but about the racial component as well. Yes. Um, in the 1950s, there was, as there is today, um, there was a lot of uh, concern and even fear about Mexican immigration. And um, the newspapers were full of editorials talking about how Mexicans were coming across the border importing poverty, crime, and disease. Um, Eisenhower, during these years, was forcibly deporting um, thousands of people of Mexican ancestry, some of whom were here legally, um, in an operation that was known as Operation Wetback. Um, and he was sending them to Mexico in ships in conditions that were so brutal that some scholars compare them to the middle passage that slaves endured when they were being brought from Africa. Fernando Rios was only here temporarily. He was not an illegal immigrant. He was here temporarily for a few days for his job. 
that didn't stop him from being vilified in the press. And in fact, um, the uh, the two daily papers at the time were the Picayune and the State's Item. And there are times in the news coverage when they don't even refer to him by name. They refer to him as the Mexican, as in, and then the Mexican made an indecent advance. Mm. Um, clearly, his um, foreignness, his you know, his race was being used as something against him during the trial and um and he was being set apart as different and suspect yeah um, this is all by the way coinciding with the mccarthy years mm. um and um basically in the mccarthy years everyone was suspected of being a communist yeah if you were gay you were probably a communist as well if you were mexican you were probably a communist as well if you were black you were probably a communist as well so um so it's not just a foreign sexual threat but it's a, a foreign cultural threat a for a foreign political threat i mean the specter of whatever you wanted to be whatever yes yeah <laughs> yeah fernando rios became an all-purpose villain interesting um Tell me, you were a teacher for 24 years before? Uh, well, I was, you add it all up and it's somewhere in the 30s. Really? Oh, yeah. wow. Uh, I was, uh, but I spent 26 years at the Louisiana School for Math, Science, and the Arts in Natchitoches. Did you write any books before this time? Uh, my doctoral dissertation, ah. um, which was on 18th century comedy. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so these are very different from Very from different, yes. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you, what led you to kind of be interested in these kind of very dire topics uh, that are must be very difficult to write about? Uh, they are. Um, I wrote about the upstairs lounge arson because in 1973, when I was not quite 16 years old, um, I was just beginning to wrestle with the whole question of, you know, I was admitting to myself that I might be gay and trying to figure out what that meant for my future. And, you know, ba back then there were no out celebrities yeah. or no out politicians, really. I mean, it, it, so, and certainly they didn't have any out relatives. Um, so there was this real sense of isolation and this real sense of uncertainty about what my future held. And one night I was watching television and the regular programming was interrupted um, because there was a fire at a French Quarter bar that had killed many people. And even the earliest reports that were coming out from the scene as it was as the story was unfolding uh, indicated that it was the bar was a known hangout for homosexuals mm. and there was suspicion of arson. And, and I thought, oh my God, they're going to kill me. Yeah. You know, um, now it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> I hope it doesn't happen at all. Um, but I, I kept that with me for many years. And, um, if I found myself in the French quarter alone, um, in the following years, I, you know, I would go by the upstairs lounge, um, where it had been. And it was easy to pick out because the fire damage wasn't repaired for many years. So, you know, the windows were still broken. They were boarded up. The walls were smoke stained. Yeah. Um, and I, um, I finally decided to write a book about that. And, and at the time there were no published books about it. Yeah. Um, one came out shortly before mine, um, uh, by a man named Johnny Townsend. And our books are very different in scope and in intense. So, um, they complement each other very well. Um, 
And then I wrote about from Fernando Rios, as I said, because it occurred to me that his was a story that had never been told. And, um, and I'm not sure what the next book is going to be, but I hope it doesn't involve autopsies and police reports. I can imagine <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a break from that. <laughs> yeah. Um, as I was, as I was getting close to finishing the manuscript or the draft for the Fernando Rios book, I got a text from my sister one day and she said, it looks like you have another book to write. I'm sorry. And I turned on the news and that was the day of the pulse shooting in Orlando. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I texted her back. I can't do three like this in a row. Yeah. So you need a break. I, I need a break. Yes. Um, tell me you recently in September, um, put on a conference that focused on the New Orleans French Quarter as a queer space? Oh, I, I didn't put on a conference. No, I spoke at one. You spoke at a conference? Okay, <laughs> yeah, excuse me, excuse me. But yeah. tell me a little bit about what you spoke about. Well, I talked about how it was the French Quarter evolved in that way. Yeah. And uh, cities that tend to have large LBGT populations uh, are frequently port cities. Um, usually, you know, river or ocean ports, but sometimes... Like Atlanta, they were they started off as railroad hubs, mm -hmm. and what that means is you get a lot of people passing through uh, for short durations, and at a time when it was really impossible for uh, gay men, in particular, you know, specifically to to live together or to have any kind of open relationship, these kinds of places where there was lots of temporary pass through lent themselves well to short term assignations. Mm -hmm. um, they tended, they tend to be cultural centers, and we forget that New Orleans used to be one of the major cultural centers. It was a, it was a big stopping off place for all the European opera singers and the, the great actors and actresses who would always make it a point to stop here and perform. They're often near military bases, uh, where you have disproportionately male populations. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that has a lot to do with it. Um, now, New Orleans has a couple of unique twists, uh, one of them being um, Mardi Gras. Forget gay Mardi Gras in the quarter for just a minute. Think of Rex and Comus and all the time-honored um, Mardi Gras crews where, where the socially select are members. Mm -hmm. Where else do you get a group of men spending a whole year planning their party outfits. <laughs> um, it's pretty darn gay, you know, yeah. just, just the, the very concept. How many feathers will I have, you know? <laughs> How many rhinestones, you know? Um, so, uh, and, and Mardi Gras, even in the 1950s, at the height of the drive against the deviates, mm -hmm. uh, when, when they were... When, the, when Mayor Morrison and the city council were trying to eliminate queers from the city. Even then, they were passing laws against cross-dressing, but those laws always applied only 364 days a year. <laughs> On Mardi Gras, you could do what you wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the uh, mental gymnastics there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, interesting, really yeah. interesting. So, um, so Mardi Gras has, has, has a lot to do with why the French Quarter in particular and New Orleans in general evolved as queer spaces in the way it, in the way they did. Yeah. Um, in the early 20th century, the French Quarter was not seen as the jewel of New Orleans. Um, in, in much of the, mo 
pretty much up through the 50s, there were a lot of people who thought that uh, Jackson Square, the Cabildo, the Presbyterian, maybe the Pentalba buildings, that they should be preserved. But the rest of the French Quarter should be bulldozed um, and replaced with modern structures because that's where the future was, you know. And it was basically a slum. Uh, it was the low rent district. And because of that, a lot of people, it, because the French Quarter itself was disreputable, a lot of the people who lived there were also disreputable. Mm. And so there were a lot of prostitutes, you know, a lot of poor African-American musicians. Um, a lot of uh, gay people moved in. Um, and the attraction wasn't, the, you know, the beautiful architecture. It was, I can live there and be ignored. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> I'll be with the other outcasts. Um, and some of them recognized that the architecture was beautiful. And they began buying and rehabbing buildings. And, you know, people like Lyle Saxon and, and Richard Koch and um, William Ratliff, Ratcliffe Irby, you know, you know these, were, these were all gay men who very early on saw that the French Quarter was, in fact, a jewel. Yeah. A jewel in terrible condition, but a jewel nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And so um, they're pretty much responsible for its preservation. Yeah, no, I, I get mm -hmm. that. That's interesting. We're, we're running short on time, but I um, did want to ask you, what events do you have coming up? Uh, on December 2nd uh, at 6 p.m., I'm going to be uh, doing a reading signing event at Bar Redux. Uh, it's in the 800 block of Poland in the Bywater. And that's the only one that I have firmly on a calendar at this point. Okay, well, that, that's great. And I'm mm -hmm. glad to see that that's happening then. Mm -hmm. And uh, where can people find out more information about the book? Um, you can go to my website, claytondellery.com. Uh, uh, the book is available on all the online vendors, but of course, it's it's nice if you order it through local bookstores book like uh, Faubourg Garden Books or Tubby and Coos um, or Oak Street Books, any of the small independents. Um, and, uh, and it's also available on my website. Oh, fantastic. So, and uh, before we go, uh, mm -hmm. what are you reading right now? Oh, uh, belatedly, I'm reading Bastard Out of Carolina by Dorothy Allison. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And it's, it's wow, the writing is really beautiful. It's good? Okay. Mm -hmm. Good. I was looking for recommendations. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Clayton, so much. Thank you. That was Clayton Dellery, author of The Upstair Lounge Arson and most recently... Out for Queer Blood, The Murder of Fernando Rios, and The Failure of New Orleans Justice. Up next, we've got a call-in from Boston with author and poet Will Dowd, who has released a collection of poetic essays entitled Areas of Fog. Take a listen. How are you doing today, Will? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Well, great to be speaking with you. You calling in from Boston right now? I am, yeah. I'm just south of Boston, uh, so uh, yeah, representing the Northeast. Hey, we'll we'll take it. That that's great. <laughs> well, uh, tell me a little bit about areas of fog. How did this this project start, and and how excited are you for it to be out now? Oh, I'm thrilled to be out. I've been a published author for officially a week now, Ooh. a week or actually six days. But uh, it's been a dream of mine since before I could write. I used to dictate uh, to my mother when I was about three. So it's been a long time coming, so it feels fantastic. And uh, this project is, it's got a regional flavor to New England, but I think it would be of interest to, kind of, to anybody. Um, 
I was going through a little bit of a period of writer's block, and I don't know what it's like for you guys, but when we have nothing to talk about up here in New England, we often talk about the weather. <laughs> so I kind of hit on this idea of uh, keeping a weather journal for one calendar year. I started on a January 1st and went to the, to the following January 1st, and every week I wrote an essay, and I always started by recapping uh, the previous week's weather, Usually New England hands you a lot of material because we get kind of uh, every climate comes to us. Uh, and then I would sort of free associate. I have a background as a poet, so I'm sort of uh, used to just discovering my subject matter as I write. And uh, the book is filled with literary and art history. So anybody who's got a kind of taste for, uh, for that stuff, loves reading, maybe was an English major and would love to get a little hit of uh, what they had years ago, uh, this would be a reader-friendly way to get it. So that's my pitch for my book. <laughs> it was a good pitch, though. That's great. <laughs> Thanks. Um, when did you uh, begin kind of leaning into poetry? Because, you know, reading your, your bio, I, I see that you have a Master's of Science from MIT, and then you got your MFA after. What, what kind of led to that? Yeah, I, I had this fork in the road when I finished my undergrad. I was always... I'd always been interested in math and science, uh, and uh, math had always come really easy to me, and so I wanted to explore that. Uh, and I, but I also, obviously, like I said, I, I, I always had a dream of becoming a writer. And so um, when I graduated from undergrad, I, I decided to do two different graduate degrees. One would be in the science field, one would be in the writing <laughs> field, and kind of see where the chips fell. And I, I really enjoyed the science experience. And I think it informs my writing um, and informs kind of what I'm interested in, what I tend to write about. But ultimately, I think I'm a writer at heart. And so, uh, yeah, the, the path uh, <laughs> I've chosen, I've chosen the for my path. So I'm definitely going to go with the writing. No, I understand. Oh, you said uh, it, the science informs uh, your writing. Could you give a little details of that? I'm interested to hear how that, that kind of path has inserted itself. Yeah, so um, I'm, I really have a pretty wide uh, curiosity, and I was a bit, you know, I've been sort of formally educated within an inch of my life. If you look at my resume, I mean, I was one of those kids who just went to school till I was like 27, uh, but in a strange way, I also consider myself a bit of an autodidact. I tended to, uh, was always reading ahead um, of wherever I was at, so um yeah, I just have had a kind of omnivorous appetite as a reader for all kinds of subjects and information. And um, I, I enjoyed writing poetry as well. This book that I wrote, Aries of Fog, is actually shortish essays. And I like the essay form because I was able to, I'm able to bring in information. It's really, it's really tough in the middle of a poem to bring in a kind of historical fact. You can, you know, so there are talented poets out there who can pull it off. But I found it easier in an essay form to bring in history from science, history from art, and kind of tie these things together. Because to me, uh, the categories, which are so, uh, you know, there's barriers in school, uh, in my mind, in my reading life, there's, they're not so, uh, they're a little bit more porous, I would yeah. say. Put the partitions off, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's all human endeavor and human imagination. So, no, I think that that, that that's great. It kind of that that hybrid nature of the work, and and, and you know the, the book itself is really concerned a lot with uh, ghosts, both both personal and of you know famous figures such as Nietzsche or Dickinson or you know Van Gogh. Uh, what what made you want to focus on bringing these kind of images back? 
Yeah, it, it's funny you picked up on that. The book does have a running thread of kind of almost a spiritualist thread of conjuring up ghosts, the the these famous historical figures. And, you know, when I when I wrote this book for a variety of reasons, um, I was very lonely and I was I was uh, sort of had after having got these degrees and been out in the world, I had returned to my, my hometown and I was uh, which isn't the most literary center of the universe. And so I, I felt a little bit back where I had started and I was a bit lonely and I was kind of interested in reconnecting with some of these figures who had been loomed so largely for me in my reading life. And also uh, for kind of conjuring up a reader because I had always dreamed of becoming a, a writer. Uh, but as a first time writer, you don't really have a readership waiting for you. Mm -hmm. You don't know if anybody's ever going to end up reading this you feel it can feel very uh, isolating and alienating. And so I felt like I was trying to almost conjure a reader in the way that you would conjure up a ghost. No, I think that, that that's fascinating, actually. Um, interesting. Who was your, what was your favorite essay to write for this? You know, it was funny. Every essay, I had no idea when I sat down to write it, where it would go. Um, but there was one essay in particular that sticks out to me in the middle of July, we'd had this, um, these horrible, you know, summer rains that had kind of just soaked, uh, and, and, and washed out a bunch of flowers and, uh, everybody was kind of <laughs> bedraggled and everybody's hair was kind of frizzing with humidity. And so it was just this kind of gross, humid, rainy week. And I looked out my window that when I was going to write my essay and I saw that the neighbor's sunflowers, were had sprouted out there was these giant sunflowers and they seemed to be really enjoying the weather so i started writing about them and then that turned into talking about van gogh who is a my favorite artist um and someone i am really interested in his life and it turned out to be kind of a, a an essay that moved me a lot um just in the writing of it i hope it does the same for the reader but that that lingers in my memory i think because i felt like uh um, talking about kind of connecting to ghosts, I, I felt a real uh, a real connection in that essay. No, I, I bet. Um, if if you have the book on you right now, I'd love if you could share a portion of that essay for us. <laughs> this is called "The Painter of Sunflowers." Between the crushing heat of the July sun and the occasional flash flood, it's been a difficult week for people and flowers. We're all feeling a bit withered. Only my neighbor's sunflowers which bloomed over the weekend, seemed to be thriving. When I spotted these sunflowers, I thought of Vincent van Gogh, who had already been on my mind. He worshipped sunflowers and painted them compulsively, from life in summer, from memory in winter. A portrait by Paul Gauguin, his friend and rival, shows Vincent in the act. It's called The Painter of Sunflowers. Van Gogh hated it. It's certainly me, but it's me gone mad, he said. I like the painting's forced perspective, how it looks as if Van Gogh is painting the sunflower itself into existence. When it comes to Van Gogh and his short life, reality and metaphor are swirled together. This was, after all, a man who nibbled his oil paints like an aspiring synesthete. It began early, when his mother delivered a stillborn son named Vincent Van Gogh. Our Van Gogh, the replacement child, was born a year later to the day. He was both Vincent and a metaphor for the lost Vincent. Later, as a painter of blazing pastures in the south of France, 
He suffered bouts of mania and delirium. Did he stare too long into the sun of his creative passion, or was it just severe sunstroke? I think his suicide was a metaphor too, or at least it was meant to be. Just a few weeks before Van Gogh shot himself in a wheat field, he'd borrowed a revolver to scare off crows. His brother Theo had announced he was moving to Holland. Theo was the wooden frame to Vincent's stretched canvas. Without Theo, Vincent's financial and emotional survival was at risk. In the past, whenever someone tried to leave, Van Gogh resorted to self-mutilation. When Gauguin moved out of the yellow house, he sliced off his left ear with a razor. When a girl he loved skipped town, he held his hand over a candle frame, vowing to keep it there until she returned. When Van Gogh shot himself in the chest, he missed his heart. It was supposed to be a symbolic act, a metaphor. This is what you are doing to me, Theo. And it only became literal as the result of an inept country doctor. At least that's how I read it. And this brings me to the reason why Van Gogh has been on my mind. An Italian artist named Demut Streb has unveiled a living replica of Van Gogh's left ear, the one he severed, which she crea- recreated using DNA from an envelope Van Gogh sealed in 1883. The ear was grown in Boston with the help of scientists from MIT and Harvard and is currently on display in a German museum. Until now, if you hope to divine the true source of Van Gogh's madness and solve the mystery of his suicide, you had to study the letters and stare at the paintings. How much easier it will be to pluck a red hair from a thick brush stroke and grow another Van Gogh and watch to see how this one kills himself. Van Gogh was buried in a hilltop cemetery. His coffin was heaped with sunflowers. It was late July. According to one mourner, the sun was unbearable. Thanks so much for sharing that. that that's a really lovely essay. And the uh, portion about the uh, Italian artist with the Van Gogh's ear from DNA, that, that's fascinating and a bit, very strange, but fascinating. Oh, it's, it's, it's completely trippy. And it, and it does uh, kind of go along with this theme we were talking about, about reviving the dead in this, in this way, in a very literal way, regrowing an ear. Um, I should say that a lot of the book is is uh, not quite as dark as that. That's probably one of the darker essays. Mm-hmm. But um, I think because of it, it, it just lingered in my mind because it made a, a kind of an emotional uh, dent with with me as I wrote it. Um, some of the the other ones are a little bit um, more pleasant, uh, but there are a few that that strike a little deeper, and that was one of them. Um, yeah. Interesting. Well, to pivot a little bit, we um we we WRBH are a station uh for the blind and print impaired, and I know uh you suffer from a neuromuscular disorder that has kind of affected your vision. And I was wondering if you could talk to us about that experience because I know it came to you at twenty five. You had to start dealing with that, or in your mid twenties. And I was wondering how it affected your kind of day to day living as well as your your writing life. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, contrary to me just having read that, um, I was reading that with one eye closed. I have a binocular vision disorder, and um, I, the way it manifests is that, um, you know, the when I use two eyes to try to focus on a single point, they don't quite uh, jive together, and so um, things end up being a little bit blurry and a little bit strained. And while I could, you know, read for that three minutes. If I was to read for much longer, um, 
I would have a lot of pain and it would it would it would affect me for the rest of the day. So you can imagine that, you know, reading a full book or or reading like I used to uh, in graduate school and before that um, is just impossible. My life's been completely changed. Um, I had vision, this kind of vision issue kick up when I was about, you know, in my late teens, but not until my mid 20s did it really drop a curtain on things and make me have to reckon with it and change uh, my methods of both reading and writing. Uh, so how this vision issue affected my writing is that I started to use voiceover, which is uh, comes with it's a program that comes with most Apple products, and you can essentially dim your screen to black and then operate the computer completely using audio feedback and gestures on a trackpad or a combination of keys. So I would use that to write, and then for reading, uh, I've totally migrated over to audio. So I will uh, listen to books with uh, read to me by a text-to-speech voice, those yeah. you know the automated robotic voices, or I'll do a lot of um, you know like audio books and things like that. No, I, I think that that's interesting. And as far as you know, the writing itself, uh, it's got to be a strain to look at the page and kind of see, especially in poetry. Uh, how have you kind of you know been working to deal with that? Yeah, I think it it explains it's behind the reason why I, I shifted from poetry to uh, essays, which this the areas of fog is essays, and partly it's because poetry is uh, very visual. Obviously, it's a lot about how the words are laid out on the page and where the lines are ending, and creating a kind of sculptural text. And that doesn't have a lot of value for me right now because I do everything through audio, yeah. and so. Um, so that so that makes sense sort of for me to change into the essays and but then also in the essays I really compose on a kind of sentence to sentence um, way so you know I try to make every sentence really as good as I can make it because it's a unit of thought it's yeah. easy to do uh, and um, I know in that my essays tend to be short just because I'm not crafting these huge long coherent paragraphs so that's again little would be someone uh, who has unlimited visual stamina might be able to do that better than me. No, I understand that. Well, interesting. Um, but well, our, our time is short, sadly. I could talk to you sure. about this all day, but um, uh, to kind of round us out, uh, what are you reading right now and what are you working on? Oh, okay, great. So, um, yeah, I've been actually listening to some lectures on craft by uh, Borges, who was a, a blind uh, South American poet, and he he gave those over the last century. Uh, he would kind of extemporize, and they're magnificent lectures and really moving to hear because he was somebody who um, actually lost his sight around the time that he became head of li- the, I think a, a giant library. So it was a bit of a Twilight Zone um, irony for him, and yet seeing how he continued his interest in books and continued his literary output has been really inspirational. Um, And then as far as what I'm working on, uh, I'm still uh, composing a lot of essays, and I do have some ideas uh, for some more experimental projects. I I used to be a painter, and so I'd like to also find a way to keep up in some way with an art project, but again, uh, working around some of the visual limitations. Yeah, no, really interesting. Well, well, this was a, a pleasure speaking to you. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, absolutely. I think WRBH is doing a great service, so I'm happy to be here. Thanks. I was just speaking with author and poet Will Dowd, who has just released a collection of essays entitled Areas of Fog. Before that was New Orleans-based author Clayton Dellery. And that's our show. 
You've been listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch our show every Thursday at 3 p.m. as well as on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. After the show's air, they'll be uploaded to our SoundCloud page, which you can find at soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio. Until next time, I'm David Benedetto. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving.